Hello, I'm Georges Collinet, and on this edition of Afropop Worldwide, we'll... Wait a minute. Something's not right here. What? Now, that's more like it. So, let's try it again. Hello, I'm Georges Collinet, and this is Afropop Worldwide from PRX. Today, we're exploring the black history of the banjo, which is to say, the history of the banjo. For many Americans today, this instrument brings to mind the Beverly Hillbillies that you heard earlier, or bluegrass music, white rural life in the Appalachia. Great music, no doubt, but for most of its history, the banjo has been played almost exclusively by black people. This instrument descended from West African precursors and was forged in the Americas. Its story is one of peoples forced together to create new cultures. It is a story of attraction, virtuosity, rejection and appropriation. A story of whitewashing, cover-up and rediscovery. In other words, it's the story of American music's backbone. Folk, pop, and music made at home played from New York City to the most remote mountain hollers of West Virginia all featured the banjo up into the 20th century. And this is not just a United States story. We're hearing Wesley, a Haitian-Canadian guitar ace who isn't afraid to bust out the banjo to play some troubadour music, just as his great-grandfather might once have done. to define our terms. Cool. So we called up some of the banjo's most prominent advocates. I'm always happy to talk about banjos. My name is Rhiannon Giddens, and I am a musician, 
and an educator of sorts and an armchair historian. Uh, and I also write. I, I'm a composer and a songwriter. Hey, what is a banjo anyway? Well, the banjo uh, is an instrument, first off. It is a stringed instrument, and there are a lot of different kinds of banjos, but in general, it has a round body and a long neck and four or five, sometimes six, strings at this point. Sometimes there's a short string, also called a drone string, and sometimes there isn't. Though her formal training is in vocal performance, Rhiannon Giddens made her name playing banjo as a member of the Carolina Chocolate Drops and later our Native Daughters, the group we are hearing. A native of North Carolina, Giddens uses the banjo to examine the past and celebrate the often overlooked contributions of black string bands and black banjo traditions, which is to say, the only communities of banjo players for hundreds of years. When you're looking at the history of the banjo, well, it feels like the story can go as far back as you care to look. banjo ancestors that are from West Africa, which themselves, of course, are related to, to instruments that came from the Middle East, which are connected to, you know, the Far East. It's, you know, it's kind of a never-ending journey with these kind of instruments. But um, there's lots of different sort of spike gourd loops all over West Africa, and these would have been the family of instruments that people remembered or brought or whatever with them to the New World as they were, they were themselves forcefully brought to the New World. roots trace all the way back to the earliest lutes made in Mesopotamia, today's Iran. The lute made its way to Egypt around 1500 BC and spread across the Mediterranean world and North Africa and down to the Sahel, south of the Sahara. Spike lutes were made from hollowed gourds covered in animal skin and punched through with a stick. Strings stretch tight and attach to the stick on both sides, resonating over the skin and gourd. There are more than 60 plucked instruments in West Africa like this, including the Ngoni, played by the griot cast of historians, singers and storytellers across West Africa, the Halam, and the Gambia's Akonting, which in both construction and playing style most resemble the banjo. Contemporary musicians on both sides of the Atlantic have noticed the family resemblance of the instruments and techniques. 
In 2019, Afropop's Banning Hair sat down with Ngoni master Basiku Kuyate and played him an old recording of Fox Chase played by John Tyree. Tyree was born in Franklin County, Virginia in 1915 and played with a frailing technique, plucking the five-string banjo's open-drawn string with his thumb and striking downward with the back of his fingers. Basiku Kuyate had no trouble picking up the tune on his ngoni. He laughed and exclaimed, it's the same thing. C'est la même chose. C'est la même chose. <laughs> Avec mon père, c'est la même chose. player who loves all this stuff and and I like pointing the the arrows towards the truth where you know whenever I know what it is or think I know what it is. In 2005, the jazz banjoist virtuoso Bella Fleck traveled to East and West Africa, jamming with local musicians who played well whatever they wanted to, uh, be it a lute, kora or a bira or a giant earth marimba. Bella and his companions created two albums and a documentary film about the experience, all titled Throw Down Your Heart. The Flectones were going to take our first year off that we'd ever taken in 15 years of being a band. And so suddenly I had the opportunity to go do something I would never be able to do in a normal year. So I was looking for something fun and unique. And, and also, you know, it always bugged me that everybody thought the banjo was a, a Southern white instrument only. And I always have to say that Southern white side of banjo playing is one of the great musical offerings of the world. It's not that it ain't great, it is great. It's just that there's a lot more to the story. The story is even better if you start to feather in all the other amazing parts of the history of the banjo and the great music that's been played on it uh, in a lot of different idioms. So at any rate, I decided to go. And you know, the idea of researching the, the roots of the banjo was like part of the storyline of the film. But I was more selfishly interested in just jamming with great musicians from these different cultures and seeing if I could find a way in. And I knew that I, I had a good chance of it because I used to do a lot of State Department tours, uh, both with Newgrass Revival and the Flectones, where we'd go to different lands, uh, whether it be India or uh, you know even Egypt uh, or Morocco. When Bella and Basiku got together in Bamako, their musical styles intertwined seamlessly and Bella couldn't help but contrast and compare playing styles, like how they both play unfretted drone strings with their thumbs. 
I remember them being, you know, in, like a D and an A with the strings that he plays. He's only playing on two strings mostly, and then he's got these uh, high strings on either side. So um, then he had these seven string ones with all of these different high strings, like on the banjo, you've got the fifth string, the short string, you know, the, the, the high drone. And so on some of the Ngonis, he had like five high drones on both sides of the neck. instruments have also been evolving in their own traditions as the banjo has emerged. It's impossible to establish just which of the West African spike lutes is the ancestor of the banjo because it likely has DNA from many of them. Rhiannon Giddens. Banjo becomes what we think of with these kind of characteristics as a banjo in the New World, in the Caribbean. And within the Caribbean, there was a huge amount of syncretization going on between different African cultures, you know, musics, religions, because people are being brought from different places and they're having to automatically start to communicate with each other. And one of the ways that we do that, of course, is through music. And Europeans, outsiders of the culture, start to kind of notice these instruments and they start commenting on them and they start drawing them and talking about them and you have different terms starting to be heard like the banza, the banjer, uh, the banjo. This is starting to happen in the 1600s. For hundreds of years, people captured in war or simply kidnapped were sold to Europeans who took millions of Africans across the Atlantic to work. Forcibly transported to the Caribbean and the Americas, Africans were often mixed without regard to language, regional origins, or culture, but somehow stripped of all freedom, clothing, and possessions, enslaved people's memories of the spike loot survived the Middle Passage. Gourd banjos emerged at the intersection of Central and West African cultures in plantations and port towns of the Caribbean and American South. The earliest banjos that have been discovered in Suriname and Haiti date back to the 1600s. Well, I like to call the banjo African-American. By American, I mean like the whole of the Americas, right? Not just the United States. 
because, you know, when you have Africa, Africa's a continent, it's enormous. You have huge variations in people, cultures, musics, whatever. It's too reductive. Um, but when the, the fact of the matter is when, when people were brought to the new world, they maintained, you know, their own cultural label and heritage as much as they could, but the, a different culture starts to form because it has to. People are surviving. They are creolizing, you know, um, in a way. And the banjo is from that culture, you know? It's not a Ghanaian instrument. It's not a Gambian instrument. It is an African-American instrument. It was born out of a lot of different people coming together and creating you know, a way to survive. So I think it's almost ideological in, in my mind a little bit too, and that it has all of these different pieces of Africa in it, but then it's also something that doesn't exist in Africa. It is what African-American culture is, <laughs> is all of these things, you know? So for me, it's such, a, it's such an amazing symbol of that. I like that old marching jaybird. <laughs> was familiar to many but not specific to anyone's culture or tradition, it was open to everyone in the Americas. For Africans, it was a safe repository for the fragments of home held by those forced across the Atlantic and their descendants. Banjo music swiftly became a way for these new hybrid communities to represent, analyze and endure their circumstances. The banjo became a part of black communities across the Americas. It's Caribbean and it goes down into South America and also up to North America with people. So a lot of people were brought to the Caribbean and then were dispersed from there. And so a lot of people would have brought that or the memory or the idea of that up into the United States where it becomes a fixture of plantation life, but also is played in the North, it's played in the West. It becomes a, an absolutely indelible facet of black musicians and of black life. So mixed are the banjo's origins that even the instrument's name is a mystery. Is it an adaptation of the name for the round European bandore lute? Does the term banza come from the banza region in Congo? Does the instrument of enslaved people transgressing by making music get its name from the Igbo phrase banjo for being bad? Historians are still puzzling this out, but who knows if there will ever be a clear answer. By the 19th century, we start to see depictions and mentions of the banjo under various names from Jamaica to Rhode Island. In the Caribbean, banjo becomes part of manto music in Jamaica, a forefather of reggae, and it can be heard on early Calypso recordings from Trinidad and Tobago. Criticize the people who fall. 
Black string bands were enlisted for parties and dances across the colonial Caribbean. In the 18th century, the banjo became an essential part of the quadrille on the island of St. Lucia. Quelbe, the national music of St. Croix, by the way, recently featured on this program, also relies on the banjo. And of course, this Afro-Caribbean Creole spirit rings through clearly in Haiti. based here in New Orleans, Louisiana. I'm a cellist by trade, but I play banjo and guitar as well. And I sing in English and French and in Haitian Creole, which is the language of my heritage. Leila McCullough wasn't necessarily seeking out her heritage when she picked up the banjo. She had just moved to New Orleans and was getting more curious about traditional jazz. And I started playing banjo because I wanted to learn more about trad jazz and I have learned that the type of banjo that's played in that style of music is tenor banjo which happens to have the same strings as the cello so for me it was an instrument that like I immediately kind of understood the map of and so I found this banjo on banjohangout.org just fell in love with this particular instrument And at that same time, I was doing a lot of research about the founding of the city of New Orleans and this this land that we stand on and its colonial history. And I read a book called The World That Made New Orleans. In that book, it talks a lot about the Haitian influence on New Orleans culture and music. And that's something that really resonated with me because my family's from Haiti and You know, it's been a part of my identity for a long time, but always something that also felt somewhat distant, you know? And and it made me really curious about what Haitian music sounds like. And I felt, well, if Haitian culture is so tied to New Orleans, then why don't I know more about Haitian traditional music? And in my research, I found that there's a banjo tradition in Haiti. Bon 
It seems like any time you travel back into the intertwined histories of jazz in New Orleans, Haiti is there, waiting. As Haitians freed themselves from the yoke of slavery, thousands of Haitians, white, free black, and enslaved, immigrated to New Orleans, doubling the city's population and forever changing its culture. If that wasn't how the banjo arrived in the United States, it was still a pivotal moment for how it would be played here. Tikola playing Misik Tubadou. On a visit to Haiti, Leila encountered the Haitian banjo and even more Haitian music indebted to it. I went to this city, the north of Haiti called Capaïcien, where a lot of this rural secular music originates and banjo was traditionally central to that style of music. What that music became is now called compa where the banjo was replaced by guitar. You know, traditionally it's banjo, then the singer plays the cha-cha, accompanied by the tambou, which is the Haitian drum. And it's, you know, secular dance music. I got really inspired by the style of music because of the, the content lyrically. The songs talk a lot about taboo subjects in Haitian culture and society with these beautiful metaphors. You know, it's just been a huge education for me just linguistically about the Creole language. And then to know that banjo has just been kind of central in that. When we come back to the black history of the banjo, we'll follow the banjo up the Mississippi and into the mountains. And we'll uncover how this African-American instrument came to be associated with white rural America. So visit afropop.org for complete interviews, playlists, and more. I'm Georges Collinet, and you're listening to Afropop Worldwide from PRX. strings were plucked in the Americas, the banjo was a black instrument, 
There's even descriptions of it among the black communities in the north in Massachusetts and Rhode Island. We know enslaved African Americans in the south played banjo because notices looking for escaped slaves mentioned their musical abilities. Fiddle and banjo music was heard at plantation parties, so often played by black musicians that written sources specifically note when it's a white band. And accounts of black communities from the south to the north frequently mention the sound of banjos. By the early 19th century, the banjo and its audience was changing. From the 1600s until this point, it is, as much as it's kind of known as a white instrument today, it was known as a black instrument. And that's where it stayed. And it was a homemade instrument. It was, a, it was an instrument made for dances or cultural moments or whatever. And people took it with them and they used it. And um, that's where it stayed. And then in the 1820s and 30s, it makes a, its first big transition. It was then that black American music and therefore the banjo both spread and found popularity across America, as Rhiannon Giddens explains. But I think one of the reasons why it has such a wide reach is the same reason why black music, why black American music has such a wide reach, because what black culture does in the new world is that it synthesizes itself and then it synthesizes aspects of the European culture and creates something new. And then, then there's this conversation between African-American culture and the European culture around it that continues on with whatever art form it is that it's been formed. But it starts within that cocoon of, of innovation within black culture. And so when that goes out, people recognize because it is already a Creole, like it is already a, a synthesis of a lot of different cultures. So people recognize pieces of it without going, well, this is not, this is wholly one thing. It's like, oh, I see this and this, and I, you know, I respond to this and I respond to that. Personally, I think that's one of the reasons why the banjo was such a, successful in terms of how far it, it, it went from where it was born. Black music may have been widely accepted, but black people were not. Chattel slavery was still the law in the South, and the North remained unequal and hostile. With black performers excluded from American stages, it was through minstrel shows that the music and banjo made it onto commercial stages in America. But it was now played by white performers, typically in blackface. Ironically, this affirmation of the banjo being tied to blackness is how the instrument began to be reimagined as a white one. The banjo becomes sort of inextricably linked with minstrelsy, and then you have the minstrel band, which is banjo, fiddle, tambo, and bones, and that's like a sensation. That's in the mid-1800s. And then you start seeing there's the first banjo tutors, 1855, and so white community in, in, you know, in general is starting to really pick this instrument up a lot, and there's starting to be sheet music sold for it, and minstrel troops are, you know, they're proliferating. Before the era of recordings, sheet music was the way songs were sold and minstrel show tunes proved popular. The minstrel show raised the institution of slavery, which had been condemned on moral grounds from the beginning of America, yet nevertheless became essential to its economy. 
performers like Thomas Dartmouth Rice donned blackface and created the song and character Jim Crow, whose popularity was so widespread it became the name of the system of Southern segregation. Minstrel show depictions of plantation life as soft and ideal also excused the white audience for participating in the white supremacist hierarchy ruling the nation. As emancipation approached and came, the caricatures of black people became more and more vicious. came into commercial spaces, it also came into commercial production. Minstrelsy had also given us banjo makers, and now the instrument changed rapidly, taking on the round-shaped wooden body, keeping the banjo's skin tight, with methods borrowed from drums. The banjo takes on the look we know today, with metal strings and frets. It becomes cheaper to make and to buy and louder to play. White performers, sheet music and banjo books become a way for white Americans in the 19th century to access black music while keeping their distance and place in the social hierarchy. Isn't that kind of what happens? It's like, um, you don't have to go to the plantation anymore and try to learn the banjo from an actual black person. You just get a book. You know, it's there in tab. I mean, it's just... It's, there's a fascination with the music. Though minstrelsy is a relic of a vicious and racist past, it is essential in telling any history of American music. American songwriter Stephen Foster's repertoire drew from that of T.D. Rice. Of course, O Susanna would be heading to Louisiana with a banjo on her knee. It could be nothing else. Banjos and banjo music spread from black communities to their white neighbors and all across the country. At this point in you know the late, say, 1800s, it's still very much played by blacks. It's being played by whites. It's being played by rural whites. It's being played by city whites. You know, it's being played by minstrels. And it's, you know, there's different versions of the banjo. I mean, it's, it's kind of a free-for-all at this point, you know, say from emancipation to the turn of the century. It's a really interesting time period that I don't think enough light has been shown on and the only rule was there were no rules you know in terms of what banjo music was and what the banjo was doing Banjo was a staple in black gatherings in Congo Square in New Orleans, and it spread up and down the river on riverboats. Yeah, riverboats, the, the waterways, that's, I mean, that's huge. That, I mean, talk about cultural transmission and transaction and communication. I mean, that was a hotbed because of the cultures and the sort of egalitarian nature of it in a way, you know, uh, in terms of 
on the waterways and also ocean as well. I mean, there, there was less of a hierarchy. As soon as you set on step foot on land, it kind of ossified a little bit more. But on the waterways, it was just, it was a lot more mercurial and you had all of these different people from different cultural backgrounds mixing and being in the same level, you know? So that's a huge piece of where a lot of this is coming from too. By the late 19th century, the banjo was America's instrument, celebrated as a break from European traditions, better suited for the country's music. Mark Twain advised people who wanted genuine music, music that will come right home to you like a bad quarter, to smash your piano and invoke the glory-beaming banjo. Walt Whitman imagined an American opera to need at least three banjos in the orchestra. There were banjo orchestras all over the world. There were banjo orchestras in every Ivy League uh, school. There was a banjo orchestra in New Zealand, all women banjo orchestra. <laughs> you know, you see the picture of all, the, you know, it's incredible. It was like really, really big deal. Um, the banjo and we just don't even imagine all the different sounds that people you know, used to get out of this thing. In Harlem in 1910, the first African-American orchestra was formed at the Clef Club, comprising 125 pieces and banjos of every size. Their repertoire drew from ragtime, blues and minstrel tunes. And in 1912, the Clef Club Orchestra played to an integrated audience at Carnegie Hall. And down in New Orleans, the louder, more percussive banjo was a staple of early jazz recordings, as it cut through better than the guitar. White banjo makers and those selling music started implying that this, the metal commercially built banjo, was the instrument in its truest form, which is to say, the banjo's black origins were only the precursor. At the turn of the 20th century, the black banjo cover-up is on. You know, you have a kind of an unholy combination of the Great Migration, which is a displacement of what, six million, over six million people. Whenever you have a displacement like that, you have a, a huge change in cultural practices, right? So you're moving from a rural area to an urban area in a lot of instances, right? You're moving from a farm or from a small town in the South to a bustling town in Chicago or New York. And all of a sudden, the lifestyle that surrounded your banjo music Maybe you pulled it out for corn shucking, you know, for after the corn shucking, or it's, it's, just, it's just a part of the rhythm of, of daily life. 
that rhythm is totally different when you're in the city. You don't have the corn shockings in the city. And then there's all this new music that's going on. There's this early blues, there's this early jazz, there's this really exciting, you're kind of like, oh, I don't want that old stuff anymore. You know, that's like grandpa's stuff. By the early 20th century, banjo music had a whiff of the old times. And for some future-focused players, that meant it had to go. Arched up and then electric guitars took the banjo's place as jazz bands got bigger. Bella Fleck recalled a story about Danny Barker, a black banjo player who had switched to guitar because he couldn't find work on banjo. Danny learned a six-string guitar, uh, and at one point some years later, the Vega Banjo Company, who made great banjos, asked him if he would play one song in the Cab Calloway show instead of, you know, on a banjo, instead of guitar. So he went to Cab Calloway and said, hey, if, uh, if I play one song on, on the show on a banjo, they'll give me a free, you know, shiny, fantastic Vega banjo. Cab Calloway said, absolutely not. I don't want that old thing. We've been trying to get rid of that old thing for a long time. As recording technology improved, jazz didn't need the banjo. And as jazz changed, the guitar became more desirable and mass production of guitars made them cheap. Made of wood, guitars were more durable than sensitive banjos. But two other things shaped how the banjo was seen, just as it shaped how Americans saw themselves, the recording industry and the white supremacist vision of folk music. Just as the racial composition of Appalachia and across the rural South was changing, the recording industry began heating up. The decisions they made set moments of a fluid, dynamic story permanently in place, warping history. is that you have people coming in, A&R people going, well, blacks, they want this blue stuff. And you know, well, hillbillies, like they want this. And so what they're doing basically is by trying to create categories, they're segregating music. For me, it's become really, really clear that that is the second sort of nail in the coffins, as it were. So you would have had Like people, you know, like Ralph, the Ralph Peers of, of the music industry at this time going into, you know, trying to find music to sell to people, basically. So they're going into communities and recording music and it would be Hillbilly Day one day and Race Records the next. So if you're a black string band who plays hill, what, what is now being called Hillbilly music and you show up on Hillbilly Day, they're like, yo, you got to come back on Black Day. You know, I mean, you're going to learn some blues to play on black. You know what I mean? So it's just like it, it kind of what happens is it reinforces a, a small kind of cultural shift. And what it does is it puts it in stone and then it becomes this is white music and this is black music. And that plays right into the hands of the third thing that's going on at this time. And that is white supremacy. For some people, the banjo's retrograde qualities were a minus. But for cultural figures like Henry Ford, disdainful of all of this new music from black and Jewish sources in the 1920s, the banjo offered a link to the past. Ford and people like him wanted to look back to a time before all of this messy mixing going on in America's 20th century cities. <laughs> Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Of course, as we've seen, the past is just as mixed. 
There is no history of all white American folk music because there is no all white American past. When Ford tried to make square dancing America's national dance, he ignored that the bands at square dances often had black players. The trait that sets the square dance apart from European quadrilles, the color, was also likely an African-American innovation. All that history gets ignored or wiped away. So you have the movement itself of people, you have the recording industry, so what's recorded is, is what is remembered. You have the nation folk complex, <laughs> you know, that, that's starting up this idea of creating a folk music. And in that, black people aren't allowed. Even though up until this point, we were been co-creators, we've been right in there innovating, being huge parts of this music, and then all of a sudden it's like, eh. And so this is when you start getting TV shows, movies. So what are the images that you see? Even as black string bands still played, they were rarely recorded and rarely made it to the radio. Old Joe Clark, the preacher's son, preached all over the plain. The only text he ever knew was high, low, jack in the game. Round around, old Joe Clark, round and round, I say. Round around, old Joe Clark, I'm going away. The banjo finds a home in bluegrass music in the 40s with Earl Scruggs popularizing the three-finger playing style and in folk music with Pete Seeger championing the instrument. When folk music revival booms in the 50s and 60s, players draw from a canon that was already incomplete, even when the artists themselves were open about their influences. Bluegrass godfather Bill Monroe named Arnold Schultz a black neighbor in Kentucky who played in string bands as a huge influence, even if Monroe didn't think he could ever play as Schultz did. In all of about two generations, the black banjo player who has been blinking in America from the very beginning had all but exited the stage for a while. Paradise fell And the tenements grew Swept my soul Across the avenue Paradise fell And the tenements grew The tenements grew Paradise fell And the tenements grew The tenements grew. I'm a real live wire. I keep my suffering slow. You're a child of fire and the Holy Ghost. But we keep our hands close and we play it all out. We let it play it all out. We asked our guests if they knew about the banjo's black origins before they picked it up. No, that isn't really something that I under started to really understand until I was touring with the Carolina Chocolate Drops in 2011. Um, yeah, I, I thought of the banjo as kind of in the domain of like white rural music, you know? And um, 
what do you know? It actually is from black rural music, you know? So um, the banjo has been appropriated so many times um, culturally. And, and so I think that that is, is a history that I became familiar with in my journey as a banjo player and as a part of this band, the Carolina Chocolate Drops. That was Leila McCullough. Here is Rhiannon Giddens. I even grew up in North Carolina. I went to Mebbin every year for my family reunion. That's where Joe Thompson, the last black fiddler of, of the old tradition. I was there, I'm black and white, like a multiracial ancestry. My uncle was a bluegrass musician. My grandfather was a bluegrass musician and I knew none of this, not one piece of it, not one little speck of it. I just knew what everybody else knows, which is Beverly Hillbillies and bluegrass and white people in the mountains under the banjo and that's it. And we, you know, we did the we did the spirituals and the blues and they did the, the square dances and the, and, the, and the banjos and the fiddles. But just as technologies changes took the banjo from the hands of black musicians, its march is also opening new avenues. other chocolate drops came we were just at the moment where we could just go look up this stuff on the internet you know we could go listen to these recordings like before I, I think people forget that before YouTube before I mean it, like look I, it's horrible for for my bottom line as a musician but as a researcher it's gold because before this like people who had these 78s were sitting on these piles of you know these collectors nothing wrong with them but like you had to know them to listen to this stuff or you had to go to the Library of Congress or you had to, you know, it, it was very tied to geographic location, you know? But then it all this stuff gets uploaded to the internet and all of a sudden these little, you know, little baby researchers <laughs> can hear what this music is and, and see and all these books are coming out. So we just kind of came out at a time where this stuff was really starting to become more known. Researchers and musicians started retelling the banjo's story crediting black innovators and creators. In 2005, the first black banjo gathering brought together scholars and musicians at Appalachian State University. Fast forward 10, 15 years, I'm really starting to see so many younger people, you know, of color getting into this and kind of going, wait a minute, and it's just so great. But like, since we were there, <laughs> you know, like people kind of know who we are because, you know, we, d we did that thing and we made that band. And I'm really, I mean, I'm grateful for that. You know, I also am aware of the responsibility of um, just trying to tell the story as correctly as I can. And I rely on all of the research that's been done by all these amazing scholars, you know, myself, I just play the music and read, you know. A generation of young black women artists have found that the banjo really does belong to them. Rhiannon Giddens and Leila McCullough formed Our Native Daughters to champion home music making done by African-American women. All four members play banjos.
singer-songwriter Valerie June incorporates the banjo in her blend of folk, soul, and blues. On the West Coast, the Black Banjo Reclamation Project is an organization founded by a woman named Hannah Mary, a banjo player herself. In February 2020, they held a banjo-building workshop in Oakland. is emblematic of America, including the ugly parts. Leila McCullough explained that understanding the instrument's history and also understanding how its history has been told before can be very revealing. I've talked to other, you know, young black women that are also on that path, and that seems to be like the theme. It's just kind of like, you know, this feels like it's a part of me. Even though uh, my society never quite made me feel that way, I'm drawn to this. And so, you know, there's a, sort of a, a reclamation that is happening. But I think it's also just a reckoning with why. Why do I believe that this is not something for me, you know? And why do other people see it as odd that I'm exploring this? What has happened along the way to create that confusion? Conclusion is that we are in a moment of deconstructing white supremacist narratives about who we should be and how we should be in the world. And the banjo, once you know about the history, it challenges all of those things. And it challenges me to figure out those things for myself, for my own sort of healing and, and acknowledging who I really am, too. And what happens, I feel like, with our white supremacist society is that it creates blackness into this monolith. And I've never felt that I fit into any of the stereotypes, you know? And I, and I feel most people don't really feel like they fit into the stereotypes. I think my connection with the banjo has, has breathed new life into my understanding of the social dynamics in our society and why they need to be challenged in order to create positive social change. Rhiannon Giddens agrees. This is about correcting the narrative so that we have a better idea of how we came together and how we continue to come together and how we can come together as a country because the banjo is the most beautiful expression of that possible. There's a lot of darkness in there too. You know, there's a lot of darkness in there, but there's a lot of darkness in American history. The more people that get into it, the more black people that discover, the more black women that go, that's something that I, I want to be a part of. I'm just delighted that more people have been getting into it over the last 10, 15 years. And I just, I, you know, I want to see more and more of it. Asturianen. Down 
for Pop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art. And from PRX affiliate stations around the U.S. And thank you for supporting your public radio station. Additional support for Afropop Worldwide comes from Cultural Resources, creators of the Culture App, for funding our 2019 fieldwork in Mali. Thanks to Rhiannon Giddens, Leila McCullough, Bella Fleck, and Banning Air for their help with this program. Don't forget to visit afropop.org for extended interviews, banjo pictures, playlists, and more. You can also find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at AfropopWW. My Afropop partner is Sean Barlow. Sean produces our program for World Music Productions. Research and production for this program by Ben Richmond. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast, including radio programs and Afropop Close-Up podcast series. And don't forget to join us next week for another edition of Afropop Worldwide. Our chief audio engineer is Michael Jones. This program was mixed at Studio 44 in Brooklyn by Michael Jones. Additional engineering by GC from the syncopated lair in Washington, D.C. Benning Air and C.C. Smith edit our website, afropop.org. Our director of new media is Ben Richmond, and I'm Georges Collinet.